Last November, police in Oklahoma said a family game of Monopoly turned violent. Officers with the Tulsa Police Department responded to a shots-fired call on Saturday just before 6.30 p.m. The caller identified the suspect as John Armstrong, adding that he, Armstrong, had chased her down and fired a shot at her and her father. Investigators said the family had been drinking alcohol and playing Monopoly when a fight broke out between Armstrong and his stepfather. After knocking over the game board and turning over furniture, they were told to take it outside, and Armstrong pulled out a gun and chased his stepfather and stepsister down the street. So Armstrong was arrested. He went to jail. He did not pass what? Go. He did not collect what? $200. That's right. Very sharp this morning. Very sharp. And I think the moral of that story is clear to all of us. Play Monopoly responsibly. Don't drink and play Monopoly. But uh, undoubtedly, there's going to be some forgiveness that's necessary in that family. Now, if you're new to us, we're in a sermon series called Family Matters, Love Matters. And we're talking about integrating biblical love into our families. We are using the descriptors of love found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 for our springboard. And so we've talked about biblical love, family love is kind, it is patient, it is generous, it is true and honest. Today we're looking at 1 Corinthians 13.5, love keeps no record of wrongs. Love keeps no record of wrongs. So we want to talk really about forgiveness in the family. But before we do a deep dive into family forgiveness, let's talk for a minute about what forgiveness is not. Four things. Forgiveness is not folly. As Gomer said, fooled me once, shame on you. Fooled me twice, shame on who? On me. Now, we can forgive people in our family, but sometimes they might be a serial offender. So there might be some boundaries, some healthy boundaries that need to be put in place. If your, brother, your brother-in-law shoots at you while playing Monopoly, you might forgive him, but might not play Monopoly with him anymore. Number two, forgiveness is not shielding. Even though we forgive someone, they may still have to experience the consequences of what they have done, such as going to jail in Armstrong's case. Number three, forgiveness is not reconciliation. Now, reconciliation and restitution of the relationship may be hoped for, restoration, but that takes two people. It takes repentance on both sides, and that may not be present. For reconciliation, there must be forgiveness, but there doesn't have to be reconciliation for forgiveness to take place. We can forgive unilaterally. And the fourth thing I want to say is forgiveness is not codependent. It's not codependent. We do not need someone else to forgive us in order for us to be forgiving. The only need that we have is for God to forgive us. But the point today is not to go home after the sermon and say to a spouse or a parent or a grown child, did you hear Steve's sermon today? You need to stop keeping a record of wrongs and forgive me. No, forgiveness cannot be demanded, just like love. Love cannot be demanded. It can only be offered. We're going to go home today, look in the mirror and say, I need to keep no record of wrongs. I need to forgive. Okay, so with those caveats, I want to say four things about forgiveness today, and we're applying it specifically in the family. Number one, we struggle with it. We struggle sometimes with forgiveness. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21, we're going to look at the teaching of Jesus here. He had just been teaching about, if you have 
a problem with someone, you go to them personally, in private, talk about it. If there's repentance, then you can forgive. When Peter heard this, he came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times. So Peter's a little worried about how much slack he needs to cut people that are offending him. And he comes up with a big number. Seven, which was a big number. The rabbis at that day said three. And so Peter doubled that. He added one. And he thought that's pretty good. And we understand that. We struggle with that too. We, a lot of times, we'd rather keep score than we would to forgive. But somebody said, the problem with scorekeeping is there's always two scorekeepers and they rarely agree on the score. And this is illustrated well in the Old Testament, for instance. Samson, one of the judges of Israel, he was a great scorekeeper. He was not one to keep no record of wrongs and let things go. You did not want to play Monopoly with Samson, sober or drunk. And for instance, in his stories, we read about it there, he was engaged to a Philistine woman in another town, and he was gone there for the wedding, but he left her standing at the altar after he had an argument with her. He left her standing at the altar, and he went home in a huff to his parents. Later on, he cooled off, and he went back. He wanted to make up. He brought the goat. No, as a peace offering. It wasn't roses back then. or It was a goat. Only to find out that she'd been married off already to his best man in the wedding. Samson's not the kind of guy to let that go. And that's when he burned down the, the vineyards and the fields of the Philistines. It was a mostly peaceful protest, but he burned them down. And the Philistines responded in turn by mostly peacefully protesting his wife or his fiance and her father burned them to death. And things went downhill from there. And I want to read you four verses that show us that mentality. Let's see what this looks like. Judges 15.3. Samson said, this time I have a right to get even with the Philistines. I will really harm them. Verse 7. Since you've acted like this, I won't stop until I get my revenge. Verse 11. I merely did to them what they did to me. And chapter 16, verse 28. Let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. That's that mindset, that immature mindset. Keeps record, wants to make things even out in the score. Kyle Eidelman writes, we don't want to forgive. We want to rehearse. We replay the terrible moment repeatedly because we're convinced. If we don't, we're letting the person get away with what they did. When in fact, we're just continuing to let them hurt us. A lot of uh, health issues that are related to anger and unforgiveness Heart disease, stroke, blood pressure, arthritis, insomnia, gastrointestinal problems, ulcers, lupus, skin problems, and insomnia. Somebody said not forgiving is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. This big number that we struggle with, you know, in a family, it's not hard to hit that number. We might have an opportunity to forgive someone in a family seven times before breakfast. But we struggle with it. All right, here's a second thing I want to say about forgiveness in the family today. Jesus stretches our forgiveness. He stretches it. So Jesus answered in verse 22, I tell you not seven times, but 70 times seven. So Peter came up with a big number, and Jesus got a bigger number, 70 times seven. And the point, of course, was not 490. The point was that we're just to live with an attitude and a posture of forgiveness. When the disciples asked Jesus, how do we pray? Jesus said, one of the phrases was, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. In other words, 
I'm committed to be a forgiving kind of person. You exercise the same standard with me when it comes to forgiveness as I exercise toward others. Martin Luther King said, forgiveness is not an occasional act. It is a permanent attitude. A lot of times in a family, in the average family, forgiveness is necessary over small things that maybe they cumulatively, they add up, the little idiosyncrasies that we differ about that may irritate us, putting the dishes to soak in the sink instead of the dishwasher, one of my favorites, putting the laundry in front of the, la- the washing machine instead of in the washing machine, toilet up, toilet down, toilet paper on top, on the bottom. These things accumulate, they irritate, and so loving forgiveness becomes the lubricant that allows the wheels of the family to keep moving smoothly. But sometimes it's more serious than that. It's not just an irritant. It's a grievous offense. And we might think, you know, all of what you said is pretty much true, but not in this case. If people knew what they had done to me, no one would expect me to forgive that. Not even God would expect me to forgive that. And so that brings me to the next thing we want to say about forgiveness today, and that is that God exercises big forgiveness. Now, so Jesus goes on to tell a story here to illustrate his lesson. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed millions of dollars. He couldn't pay. So his master ordered that he be sold along with his wife, his children, and everything he owned to pay the debt. But the man fell down before his master and begged him, please be patient with me. I will pay it all. And then his master was filled with pity for him, and he released him and forgave his debt. The the really striking thing in this story, I'm sure you see it, is the debt. It's the size, it's the amount of the debt. Now, New Living Translation says millions of dollars. If you have the New International Version, the New American Standard Version, it may say 10,000 talents of silver. That was a big number. That 10,000 talents of silver was many times the gross domestic product of the nation of Israel. It's almost an inconceivable number. It's like our national debt. I checked last week, $32 trillion. I checked that on Tuesday. It's probably more today. But just imagine that you're on the hook for $32 trillion. Well, you don't have to imagine because we kind of are on the hook for $32 trillion, aren't we, as taxpayers? So our kids and our grandkids to infinity and beyond because nobody's ever going to pay that number. That We can't even really conceive of that number. Who knows what $32 trillion is? But that's the kind of number that we're talking about here when we say God exercises big debt. That represents our sin debt to God. Jesus stretched even more when he was talking to Peter in Luke 17, 4. He says, even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. Seven times in one day. In the first point, I said, this is an area in which we struggle. We struggle with forgiveness, with big forgiveness. 
In the sense that we struggle sometimes to forgive other people and maybe even someone in our family. But we struggle with it in another sense. Sometimes we struggle really believing and accepting that God forgives us. That God has forgiven us. We, we, we sense, we come to realize how big our sin debt is. How often we've sinned, how grievously we've sinned against God. And in those quiet moments when you lay in bed at night, you know, as we age and our mortality creeps closer and we really think about the fact that we're all going to go the way of all flesh at some point and stand before God, and we wonder, you know, I really, I really wonder if God's going to forgive my sin. One of the reassurances is if Jesus is calling us to exercise this magnitude of grace toward other people, seven times 70 or seven times in one day, how much more so is God, whose grace is so much bigger than ours, able to forgive us? How much more so does God have a posture or an attitude of grace and forgiveness toward us? And we think, well, if I sinned against God seven times in one day, in one day and seven times I came back and said, God, I repent, maybe even hourly repentance, isn't that bringing to question my, the genuineness and authenticity of my repentance? Is God really going to forgive that or is that taking advantage of the grace of God? It's a, it's a legitimate question. But I suspect that sometimes we underestimate just how much grace and forgiveness God exercises toward us every single day. Peter, who asked this question of Jesus, sinned against Jesus seven times in one day. Now that's on record. In Matthew chapter 26, this was the night of the Last Supper. Let me just enumerate them. Number one, sin number one was the broken promise to be faithful to, the, to death. Number two and three, the two failures to stay awake and pray with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane as he'd requested. Sin number four was abandoning Jesus at his arrest. Sin numbers five through seven were denying Jesus three times. That's seven times Peter sinned against Jesus in one 24-hour period. If you add in the fact that Peter vowed to be faithful unto death twice and argued over who would be greatest in the kingdom during the Passover and failed to wash his master's feet during the Last Supper, it is more like ten sins in one day, Peter against Jesus, and I doubt that that was his record. I don't think it's very hard for us to hit that number. And I say, behold the grace of God. You have not outsend the grace of God. His grace is bigger than all of our sin. His attitude, posture, desire is to forgive our sin. That's what He wants to do. And there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we simply affirm that. So God exercises big forgiveness toward us. But I want to say one more thing about forgiveness today. We think about maybe those who have offended us or our families, what's going on in the dynamic, maybe even outside the family. And that is the grace of God obligates us to forgive. The grace of God obligates us to forgive. So as Jesus is telling this story, he goes on to say that servant who'd been forgiven the big debt found another servant who owed him about a day's wages, said pay up, and that servant said give me some time, I'll, I'll pay it if you just give me some time. 
And the first servant said, no, I'm going to throw you in prison until you pay me back what you owe me. Now, when the king heard about that, we get his reaction. Now, verse 32. The king called before him the man he had forgiven and said, you evil-hearted wretch. Here I forgave you all that tremendous debt just because you asked me to. Shouldn't you have mercy on others just as I had mercy on you? And then the angry king sent the man to the torture chamber until he had paid every last penny due. And Jesus said, here's the application, so shall my heavenly Father do to you if you refuse to truly forgive your brothers. So there's only two ways to relate to God. That's what's going on here. We either relate to God on the basis of law or relate to God on the basis of grace. And of course, the point of Jesus' story about the big debt, if we were to pause and to, to think in our minds, just think about the worst thing that someone's done to us, the worst offense, the worst sin that someone has committed against us, maybe in the family, maybe outside of the family, but we think about that, and it, I'm thinking about one right now, it's, it's big, it hurts, you think about one for you, it's hurt, it hurts, it's real, it's not make-believe, think about how much that hurts. That pales in comparison to how much we have hurt God with our sin. We just start to get an inkling of what it feels like to God for us to sin against Him. And God has released us of all that debt. So now we either relate to God on the basis of law or on the basis of grace. A person who relates on the basis of law says, you know, I'm, I'm not perfect, but I'm pretty good. I'm not Tim Tebow, but I'm not Adolf Hitler. And when I die, having lived a pretty good life, I expect to go to heaven where most pretty good people go. A legal person, a law person, really has no concept of just how serious their sin is against God. And we see this in this unmerciful servant and what he said. He said to the king, just give me a little more time and I'll pay the debt. Well, he owed a multi-million dollar debt. He wasn't going to pay that off in several lifetimes. He's either oblivious or clueless or disingenuous. He does not realize just how serious that sin debt is. And we see his legalism, on the other hand, in how he treats other people who have sinned against him. Now, the grace person, on the other hand, when we relate to God on the basis of grace, we don't say, God, give me a little more time. I'll do some good works. That'll counsel out and negate my sins. No, we say, I throw myself on the mercy of the court. There's no way I'm going to experience eternal life or heaven without your mercy and without your grace. Those are the only two ways. And we can tell which way we're relating to God by how we treat other people. If I'm a law person, then I act like I'm working for the debt collector. You sin against me. You owe me and you're going to pay me until it's all right according to my standards. But if I'm a grace person, then I work for the bankruptcy judge. And the bankruptcy judge has discharged my debt. And my job now is to discharge other people's debts to me. Discharged, dismissed, and forgiven. Brant Hansen has written a book. And it's called Unoffendable. Unoffendable. I recommend this book. Scott Blount and I both agree that this is probably the best book we've read in five years. And we read, we read a lot of books. It's not that long. But in the book, 
I mean, you may have heard him. He's on Christian radio here on one of the local stations. He tells the story, the true story, of a preacher, preacher who was addicted to adult magazines. Preacher's wife went out of town for a week, and a preacher gets out the adult magazines. But then he becomes frustrated with himself. He says, I'm going to get rid of these once and for all. And he goes down the, st- the stairwell to the dumpster that's across from their apartment complex, throws them all away. Later on, he decides he wants them back. So he goes down there to the dumpster. It hasn't been emptied yet. He looks over, falls inside, breaks his arm, and is stuck. He can't get out. And that's where he is when his wife came home that day and found him in the dumpster with his magazines, bleating for help. Now, Brandt writes a commentary on that true story. I want to read what he wrote. I like the way he wrote it. He says this, since hearing that true story, I think about that guy sometimes. But honestly, I don't think about what a loser he is or what a hypocrite he is. Instead, I wonder if he's still married. I wonder if his wife forgave him. I think about what it might have been to be so obviously busted, so humiliatingly, crushingly, can't explain this one, busted, and then forgiven. And honestly, that's all of us. It may not be pornography we're talking about, but in one way or another, we're all the dumpster preacher. I found myself wondering what it would be like to be a part of a church of nothing but dumpster preachers. People who know they've been caught, their lives exposed, and then set free. I think it would be a very fun, free, joyous church. Walk into any AA meeting or celebrate recovery group, you might find something like it. You can't join Alcoholics Anonymous and pretend you've got everything under control. When you join, you're saying, I can't pretend anymore. And you're joining with people who are right there with you. There's something wonderful about that. Also wonderful. If you're in an AA meeting, no one can walk in and yell, Aha! I've got you. You're all hypocrites. I know about you, and I'm going to go ahead and say it. You're all alcoholics. That there would be a pause, some laughter, and maybe an invitation to sit down and join them. I think dumpster church would be the opposite of an angry, unforgiving place. We don't get angry when we've just been let off the hook. I'm guessing if you were driving home after being forgiven of a capital crime, you're going to let people merge in your lane without yelling at them. And what's true of dumpster church is true of dumpster church family. And dumpster family, we keep no record of wrongs. We let it go. Would you bow with me in prayer? Our Father in heaven, we reflect this morning again on your grace and forgiveness. As we ate the bread and drank the juice this morning, we realize that when sin is forgiven and when debts are discharged, they don't just evaporate in thin air. Somebody's got to pay. And you paid the price for the forgiveness of our sin in blood. When Jesus was on that cross, He was suffering our debt so that we could be forgiven. Help us to remember to live that out in our church, our neighborhood, and especially, especially in our families. We will keep no record of wrongs. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.